I want to invite you, if you would, to turn with me to Galatians 1. Galatians 1, chapter 6. I'm going to go through a whole bunch of passages today. And um, I want to just kind of be up front with my goal. Uh, I'm hoping that through sharing some of these passages, offering really just a few thoughts on them, um, that we would uh, see a move of the Spirit like literally over the course of these next few minutes together, uh, that the fear um, that so many of us, myself included, have uh, would be driven out. And I'm going to get into what kind of fear we're talking about in just a moment. Galatians 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. This is Paul talking to a church in Galatia. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. We have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse curse. Verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's letter to the Galatians was written to a number of churches in the region of again, Galatia. Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys here. Uh, He wrote this important letter from this deep uh, place of passion and frustration. And I want to share a bit of the backstory to help us understand why Paul is all cranked up. Um, Before I jump in, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are in, this is an odd exercise I recognize, but imagine that you are in South Africa in the 1970s. Apartheid is at its height. If you don't know what apartheid is, you can look that up later. You are embarked on a risky project to build a community center where everybody will be equally welcome, no matter what their color or race. Uh, You have designed it, you've laid the foundation in such a way that only the right sort of building can be built, or this is at least what you think. You're called away urgently to another part of the country, and a little later, you uh, get a letter that says that a new group of builders are building on your foundation. They've changed the design, are installing two meeting rooms with two front doors, one for whites only and one for blacks only. Some of the local people are uh, incredibly relieved. They always thought there was going to be trouble putting everyone together like this. Others, though, asked the builders why the original idea wasn't going to work. And the builders said that um, this person who had laid the foundation, you, had some really disturbing and strange ideas. He didn't really have permission to make that design. He really shouldn't have been doing that. He got uh, a bit confused. And so these people are saying, we are from the real authorities, and this is how it's got to be. I know a little sort of odd story to set this up, but this is what's going on in Galatia. So the Jesus movement, Christianity began as a Jewish, 
messianic movement in Jerusalem, but its message has always been for all humanity. In fact, you can argue actually that's what it's been from the very beginning of the story. And so it quickly spread beyond Israel. By Paul's time as a missionary, there were as many non-Jews as there were Jewish people in the Jesus movement. And this sparked a huge debate that we know about from the book of Acts chapter 15. Historically, the covenant, covenant people of God were focused um, on one on and in one ethnic group, which was Israel, and they were set apart by the practices commanded in the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Stay with me if you're a little confused or don't know your Bible. That's okay. We're glad you're here. So these practices, like circumcision of males, didn't see that one coming, did you? Eating kosher, observing Sabbath, um, these were many of the key rules that demarcated these people. There were many Jewish Christians who believed that for all of these non-Jews to truly become part of God's family. So as this Jewish story is opening up, Jesus is the Messiah, this isn't just for the Hebrew tribe, it's for everybody, that they needed to obey the laws of the Torah. This is problematic on all sorts of levels one of which adult men getting circumcised to enter into this new faith. And so some of these Jewish Christians ended up coming to the Galatian churches. They were undermining Paul and demanding circumcision of all of these male non-Jewish Christians. And so many of them, and so many of them were that. And so when Paul found out, he was brokenhearted and angry. This wasn't the plan. And this letter, the book of Galatians in your Bible, that's what this letter is ultimately about. He first challenges the Galatians with his summary of the gospel message about the crucified Messiah who died and rose again, who is now ruling and making all things new, the kingdom of God, which is breaking in. And he then argues that this gospel is what will create the new multi-ethnic family of Jesus and Abraham. And then he shows how this gospel is what truly transforms people by the presence and power of the Spirit. He opens here by sharing this passage that we just read, sharing his absolute, I guess, bewilderment might be the best term, that the Galatians have embraced a different gospel. It is the one promoted by these Christians who badmouth Paul and demand circumcision. So Paul first defends his authenticity of his message and authority as an apostle and his message that he was not requiring non-Jewish Christians to be circumcised or eat kosher. He is telling this church that he has the support of this council in Jerusalem. With all that, again, let's go back to this passage. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a different announcement, a different message, which is really no gospel at all. He's saying if this isn't good news for everybody, it's not good news for anybody. Some people are throwing you into confusion, trying to pervert the gospel, going on to verse 9. As we have already said, so now and I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So let's get at that last line. Paul's opponents had been saying that he had tailored his gospel to please people. 
Presumably they imagine Paul's failure to have Gentile converts circumcised was some sort of trick to please people, giving them some cheap gospel. Most of us like to be liked. Many in pursuit of this goal are prepared to say what they think people want to hear, but Paul is saying, nah, it's actually the opposite. Now jump ahead to chapter two, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, this is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas Barnabas was led astray. People are led astray by leaders caving to the crowd. Verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I, to- I said to Cephas in front of them all, and then it goes on from there. Cephas again and Paul are interchangeable here. He goes on railing. The rest of the chapter is just calling out Peter. Peter had come to Antioch to visit and see all of these non-Jewish Christians, and he was eating and mingling with them. But again, Going back to our our apartheid story here, when some of the opposition group shows up, Peter caves under their pressure. He stopped eating with these uncircumcised Christians and he was avoiding them. And so Paul confronts them and accuses him of hypocrisy, of not staying true to the good news. For Paul, demanding these new Christians do all this was wrong for all kinds of reasons. Peter is trying to please people. These Jewish leaders who came in after Paul are trying to please people. And Paul is making a clear distinction. If I were trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. May not feel like a big moment, but it's a big distinction. Paul is saying it's not possible to fear God and man. And if that's the case, the fear of man is a deadly, deadly thing. So first, let's start with an attempt at defining this phrase, the fear of man. I'm going to say it like this. The fear of man is an elevated value of the opinions of others in your life over God. This is about a need for approval. This is about fear of disapproval. This is about a need for acceptance. It's the pressure that we feel from our group or from our tribe. It's that need for honor. It's that need for recognition. It's that fear of criticism. It's that fear of humiliation. I struggle with none of those things. (laughs) An important principle as we go forward in this talk, that at the end of the day, we will fight for and conversely fear that which we find identity and power and security in. Right? Insert every peer pressure story you've ever heard and experienced. I have like six of them I was going to share. I'm going to spare you that today with the online service. If you come in person, which you won't be able to because you're watching this now. Never mind. So the fear of man will keep us rooted in insecurity and it will keep us rooted in powerlessness. Let's keep going. Turn with me to John 5. John 5, I'm going to start in verse 41. Here we have Jesus exposing the danger of the fear of man. A little background. Jesus is warning 
uh, a crowd of Jewish leaders who were furious because he had healed a man on the Sabbath, even though the man had been disabled for nearly 40 years. This crowd is at the point of wanting to kill him. Lots going on here. Jesus said, quote, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is a fairly normal and yet troubling scene in the New Testament. Jesus is healing the sick and the blind and the hurting. He is fulfilling scripture, claiming to be the Messiah, and the religious elite are pushing back. They are not fans because he is disrupting the status quo, talking about himself and his ministry in a way that would upset the establishment. He's stirring up the people. He's worrying those empowered that he's going to tick off the Roman authorities, all sorts of stuff going on. The question in all of these New Testament interchanges is why did so many of these people, these religious folks, the Pharisees in particular, fail to recognize who he was? Why did they consistently miss the truth of the message that he was bringing? Why did they seem to distort what it means to love our neighbors? What motivated them to eventually murder Jesus? How can you believe, Jesus says, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here, Jesus seems to be saying that the root of this failure to see who Jesus really was, the root of that failure, or to, the root of the failure to step out in faith and follow him was their fear of others, fear of their culture and fear of their system. They feared all of the places that they found security and identity and power. Now, now what's so interesting is that some of these religious leaders actually recognized Jesus for who he was. Turn with me to John 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many of these authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not put out, not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man and more than the glory that comes from God. It makes sense, right? This is what happens when we fear others more than God or when we long for man's approval more than God's. We begin to become closed off to what the Spirit's doing. We exchange inconvenient truths for convenient ones. Jesus is coming correct, and they could not accept him. They listened to love incarnate and heard hatred. Why? I mean, there's all sorts of this like sermon in and of itself, but right? Because God's love is volitional, and God's love is specific, and it's for our good. This doesn't sound relevant at all right now, does it? They looked at right people confusing love. They looked at safety and instead they saw danger. They're thinking about how Rome was going to react. How will fellow Jews of certain sects react when they're coming face to face with eternal safety? They're coming face to face with true rest and protection from that which matters most. All they saw was danger. Why? Because it disrupted their group thought. They stood before perfect joy and they felt misery. 
They are trapped in this world of fear that if they didn't follow all of these religious rules and rituals, they would remain under Roman oppression. We could go on. They are offered life. They're looking face to face with the abundant life incarnate, and they preferred death. Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Eugene Peterson transliterates this passage like this. I love this. Same passage. I'm not interested in crowd approval. This is Jesus speaking. And do you know why? Because I know you and your crowds. I know that love, especially God's love, is not on your working agenda. I came with the authority of my father and you either dismiss me or avoid me. If another came acting self-important, you would welcome him with open arms. How do you expect to get anywhere with God when you spend all your time jockeying for position with each other, ranking your rivals and ignoring God? Bam. So we have Jesus with the Pharisees. Rewind a little bit. We have Paul with the Galatians. We have all sorts of great stories. Like this is one with Saul and David. You should look up in uh, 1 Samuel. I don't have time to get into, but they all go after this idea of the fear of man. The fear of man. So turn with me to Proverbs 29.25. Sorry, 29.25. Here we actually have this phrase, point blank. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man's a trap. It relies on disguise and it intends to harm. We don't see it or address it so often because what? It's subtle. This fear cloaks itself with love. It thinks it's counting others more significant than itself, but what it's really doing is secretly relying on others to fan the flame of its own ego and pride and self-protection. And I think we completely fail to confront it or even recognize it because the fear of man so often looks like love and there aren't too many of us that don't want to look loving or look cool or look in vogue or whatever. But the scriptures are saying as clear as day that it's a trap. Because it elevates everyone else above God. Jeremiah 17, 5. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person is like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity. When it comes, they will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him, is your confidence in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out roots by the stream. It's basically the same ending as Proverbs. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe, trust, deep, abiding, trust that God is he says he is, that he's worthy of all of it, that his way is best, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Now, we see this not just in our individual exchanges, not just in sort of the peer-to-peer places, but in large pockets of the church. Uh, Justin Gibney 
who uh, leads this thing called the AND Campaign, which I highly encourage you to follow if you're on Instagram or Facebook. This is, um, this, uh, there's a lot to say about this, but he recently wrote an article uh, called For Cosmopolitan Christians, like urban Christians, secular approval is a common temptation. The subtitle is Elite Believers Often Sound More Like Disciples of Jacques Derrida Than Jesus Christ. And that needs to change. It's a hard moment. Consider um, these sort of social dynamics in another way. You're in a progressive city. Let's say you have a highly progressive friend group. There's some important nuance or critique that pops up around a hot button social issue that resonates with conservatives. Like this has never happened. It just happens like every five minutes. The minute Fox News makes it a talking point and overstates it or exaggerates the point, it becomes a caricature. Then the left capitalizes on it and will make sure that you see no value in it. And then you, the individual, are stuck. You don't want to be caught dead having a similar, similar opinion as those people who represent whatever negative thing that represents, whatever negative thing that that news organization represents to your progressive friends. And so you hide. The same thing happens on the other side of the political aisle if you find yourself in more conservative company. This is our culture. Just rinse and repeat. The need to name and confront the fear of man is not just a personal thing. It's not just that moment where you have to check your sexual ethics or your wallet or your vocation or following the Spirit's lead when God taps you on the shoulder and says, go talk to that person in the grocery store. And you're like, no, 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 they're already too, they're, they're gone. Or, or, or it's okay to worship with like a, abandon in the church. It's not just in those situations, it's everywhere. Consider this, and I know we've talked about this a bit before. By and large, we as a culture, we are a culture, live in a culture, this is the air that we breathe, believes that no one has the right to tell us what to do. We desire to be free from authority, which means it's the individual against everything else. So as a result, when you're a Jesus follower, trying to tell yourself and everybody else that the way to freedom and joy is to take every area of your life and submit them to the lordship and authority of Jesus, most people like, don't have a plausibility structure. Like, that's just not plausible. Why would you do that? Like, that, how would that even happen when everything and everyone around us is pushing for freedom from claims of a person like Jesus? So there's a deep conflict. Jesus is Lord of all versus nobody has the right to be Lord of anything but me. I'm Lord versus Jesus is Lord. I know we all feel this. We feel this in our heart. We feel internally torn. I feel this every day. I've taught on this directly multiple times over the last couple of years. There's still this seductive, compelling narrative that's coming at us from every conceivable cultural angle. If the goal of our world, of our culture right now in the West is to throw off any sort of authority and be your authentic self, the concept of self-denial, the idea of Jesus as Lord seems like spiritual insanity. Until you realize that everyone is just affiliating somewhere else. Everyone's just looking for another tribe, another worldview. They say it's just me and I want to be free as an individual, but that's actually not true, almost ever. We're looking for another group, another space, another space to place my identity and to place my power and to place my security. 
We bow to the opinions of those who, where we find our identity, power, and security in. So the question that I have to ask myself is, do I find my identity and my power and my security in Christ alone? Do you fear the Lord alone? Because like it says elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord is a deep and overflowing fountain of security and stability and joy. The fear of the Lord is the only fear that produces peace. And not just any peace, but a peace that surpasses all of our shallow ideas of peace. If God is small, if God is peripheral, if we have made God relatively harmless, we are far more likely to cave to the fear of man. Others, other people's expectations will corner us. Their disappointment will crush us. Their anger will dismantle us. Please hear me. I am preaching to myself like never before. Look to be free from the enslaving fear of others. God has got to be big. Bigger than their expectations. Bigger than their disappointments. Bigger than their anger. Big enough to fear. Stay with me. One more passage. Peter. Peter writes to the church in exile, a church that is deeply misunderstood with serious brand issues given the cultural context, being blamed for all sorts of things, ideas of love and generosity and uh, what it means to uphold life are being distorted. And in verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perish perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you, but with the precious blood of Christ. What is he saying? Saying know whose you are and live among people as you live among people who won't get you. Live with holy, trusting, even joyful fear of who? Of God. When you do that, you won't fall into the same snare, the same trap that the Jews of Jesus' day fell into or Paul's detractors fell into in Galatia. Maybe we could say it like this. Woe to us if we fear and tremble before criticism and yawn before the cross. This is not an invitation to triumphalism. It's the opposite. If you're hearing this and you're going like, I'm not gonna care what anyone else thinks. I'm gonna follow my heart without fear. You have half of it, <laughs> almost there. The invitation is to declare, I'm only going to care what God thinks. And that's discerned through the spirit, through his church and checked against his word. This is a call to a humility and a single-mindedness that will lead to freedom. Ed Welch, writes in a book on this subject, which I actually have not read, but found this quote. All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. In other words, they control us. There is no room in our hearts to worship both God 
and people. Whenever people are big, God is what? Small. So the first thing we have to do to break the fear of man is to know that God is beautiful and glorious and that Jesus is the way and Jesus is the truth and Jesus is the life and that Christ alone is our compass and our path. There is no invitation here to focus on the diminishing of other people, of their desires or their opinions or their expectations. This is not an invitation to be a jerk. No, 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 that's going the wrong way. That will happen naturally. That will happen naturally, not being a jerk. The diminishing of other people's value, of other people's place in your life will diminish naturally when we worship and when we elevate his power and his wisdom, his love and his truth. So church, let the kingship and the lordship of Jesus expose and quiet your fear of man. And then you will be free to truly love the people that you're prone to fear. Lord Jesus, there's a lot we could say as we come to the table now, as we come to take the bread and the cup, as we come to remember this act of love and sacrifice of you following your Father's will following the path laid before you in spite of all the temptation and all the fear to pull you off track as we come to celebrate this mighty and beautiful act of salvation, of redemption and renewal, Lord. We come open-handed asking, Lord, that you would help us break the fear of man in our lives, to live with greater freedom and confidence and assurance. So those of us that need to experience a humbling because like we're, we're, we're pretty self-assured, but we're not sure like we're self-assured in the right sorts of ways. And for those of us that need to be encouraged and bolstered to trust you more, Lord, I pray your spirit would move and come in these next few minutes together. I pray this all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>